Perspectives, Perspectives, and I'm your host, Sneha. Perspectives is about bringing you conversations from individuals around the world, sharing their stories and experiences of life. We're trying to create a space to have the necessary but sometimes hard conversations on mental health, community, life, and everything in between. Conversation and information are an integral part of our lives and our growth. And with our very same hope, incredible people from all over the globe are sharing their perspective with you. Please know that sometimes these discussions get intense and we touch on topics like depression, anxiety, self-harm, abuse, and more. So if any of these topics can trigger you, please take care while listening. Listen with a friend or someone you trust. If this environment is not immediately available to you, I request a way to learn a better state of mind in a safer space. Also know we are not professionals giving out any medical opinions, but individuals sharing our perspective and our stories. If you need any professional help, please seek the same. This podcast is not a substitute for professional help. Thank you and take care. And without any more further delay, let's get into today's chat. I'm really excited to introduce Amy today. Um, Amy is a holistic life coach, a three times published author of personal development books and a certified trauma support specialist. And she has been so gracious to take out time today to chat with us. Thank you, Amy. And I'm really uh, looking forward to getting into our chat today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, So to start us off, would you tell us a little bit about why did you personally take a holistic approach to therapeutic support? Sure. Yeah. So I struggled a lot emotionally in my teens and I went to regular like conventional therapy. Um, it didn't, it didn't land for me. You know, I, I went in and I saw different therapists throughout my teens and how I kind of experienced that. And I know it works differently for everyone, but my personal experience was I kind of felt like a number, not a person. They brought me in and they didn't really give me tools or, you know, an understanding of where my struggles were coming from. They just told me what my problem was and diagnosed it and gave me medicine. And then if they gave me any kind of like coping mechanism, it was a workbook that they had handed out to every single patient of theirs. So it wasn't individualized. It didn't really connect for me. I took the medicine for years until I got to a place on my own where I knew it wasn't helping me. It was actually kind of perpetuating more of my unhealthy ways of behaving and thinking. And so I kind of sought out spiritual help and in that approach learned way more about energy and the connection between the mind and the body and a connection to like something much bigger than myself. And that really started to transform a lot in my life. And from that point forward, I was like, no more diagnosis, no more medication. I'm going to kind of dig into this and explore it a little more on my own, which is what really landed me here. That's wonderful. I think that you're so right. Therapy, it's uh, it's not a one size fits all kind of practice. Like every individual has their own. It's about finding the right thing that clicks with one person. And exactly. as, uh, I'm sorry that it had to have been through such a long journey for you to find what clicked right. But what I think is so admirable is that now that you've figured it out, what works for you, what you're sharing and how you're creating a platform to help others is something so, like I respect you so much for it because there are not a lot of people who turn their own journeys into what they're, you're creating what you didn't have for others. And I think that's yes. something that's so admirable. So thank you for what you're doing. No, thank, thank you for acknowledging that because that that's kind of the dry. I mean, we had a brief exchange before we started recording where you said something similar, like, you know, sharing these stories and doing this is, is passionate for you and you're connected to it in a really deep way. And I am too in my work, right? Like I've struggled and I didn't really have the support in a way that resonated with me and, and helped me the way I needed to be helped. And the minute I figured it out and started to help myself, it was like, how could I not want to, you know, share this with more people and be that support that I didn't have growing up. And it, it keeps me going, you know, cause it's not necessarily an easy career path. It takes a toll on you, but that's kind of what keeps me really invested in it is, is watching myself be able to be that person that was not in my life for so long. I can completely understand that. I think with this project on its own, 
sometimes even a lot of these conversations sometimes are quite intense and quite overwhelming for me personally as well but it's again like the kind of motivation you said uh, like that we talked about like there's always going to be someone that you can pro- you can pro- possibly help through something like this yeah. and that's kind of what keeps me uh, running with this project as well and like when i created mind matters it was about the conversations that i never had when i was in my struggling moments and had i heard what i've heard now in those yeah. particular moments i would have done something completely different i would have taken a different decision i would have reacted different to a situation and i would be a different person right now so we're hoping yeah. that these con- like conversation and information is such an integral part of our life and a journey and growth and i think it's it's so so admirable that you're using your platform to do the same thank you thank you so much i really appreciate that uh, so to delve more into what your practices are could we kind of could you tell us a little bit about how communication is an integral part of our lives and our mental health specifically sure yeah i mean as you've said like when you grow up and there's a lack of communication it really it really fuels behavior patterns of uh, avoidance suppressing or repressing your your anxieties your fears your angers your frustrations when you're taught not to communicate or it's not safe to communicate you hold in all of your emotions and uh and that's what really kind of like gets it stored in your body and drives a lot of these unhealthy ways of behaving right like we start people pleasing because we don't know how to express what we need or want and ask for it so we just kind of like read the room and see that we might get love and attention and affection if we go run after like meeting the needs of other people in our lives so you know being able to communicate and having a safe environment to do so in like parents cultivating environments at home where it's a welcomed conversation to express your frustration or your anger in a productive way is going to really change the trajectory of a lot of people's lives and their mental and emotional health when we don't have that we turn to things that are not healthy for us to cope with these un met needs and these emotions that have been left unspoken for so long and and that's why we have addictions and drug problems and you know people get diagnosed and then rely on medication for the rest of their life because they don't have the coping tools because they never had that safe space or that individual who was equipped to be like hey it's okay i'm not going to take what you say personally you can cry you can yell you can express and then we can work through it together. A lot of parents are emotionally immature and that's, you know, that was my firsthand experience with my parents. They didn't grow up with mature adult examples either. So what they embodied for us growing up was you cry and they take it personally and they make it mean something about their parenting and so then they don't want you to cry anymore. They say just get over it cuz they can't deal with their own emotion in that moment. So, you know, as you can see, like it's a real game changer when you grow up with individuals and examples that just allow that open door for you to be like, hey, it's safe to be vulnerable in this moment cuz cuz otherwise we start to build walls between us and that just creates a larger disconnect. Uh, as you're speaking, I could sort of like replay in my head as well like what my journey has been, like from yeah. like I shared with you, uh, I had lost my brother when I was 16. and yeah. we've never had those conversations so i never knew if it was okay for me to express that the grief and the anger and the guilt that i was feeling and i didn't for a lot of years and i internalized all of those conversations and after a certain point it erupted and there was obviously um a lot of issues that i had to deal with after and another interesting thing what you brought up now was how you mentioned um what your parents had grown up with so it's almost like a generational thing that yeah. you, you're never really told that it's okay to have conversations and create that space so which i think right now creating those conversations now we're making almost an effort to change what the future generations are going to end up having as their space and like what kind of environment that they grow up in just the idea of how your mental health your emotional health they're all interconnected yeah yeah i mean it is generational and that's the thing is there's a lot more these days there's a lot more people that are like i don't want to be like my parents and i'm going to break this pattern 
but I don't think that was available or even a mindset when, you know, my parents are now entering their seventies, that wasn't even a thought process. The main focus of their life was get through high school, go to college or find somebody and get married and get kids, like have kids. So mental health wasn't really at the forefront of their priority list. It was just, Hey, like meet all of these things on the checklist that your parents told you are important in life. And then you get to a point as you have your own kids where you're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> My kids won't act right. And I don't know how to deal with them. I, I work with a lot of parents and I love working with parents with young children because that's really where, as we said, like I get to kind of step in and play this role that I didn't have and be that voice of reason to be like, your kid doesn't have anger issues where you have to take them and, and get a label put on them. They have anger issues because they've got an unmet need. And it's not because you're a bad parent. It's because you don't know how to navigate that unmet need right now. This is how they're trying to ask for it and express it. When we learn those things, I mean, again, it really changes generationally what's going to happen within our families and then our kids' lives and so on and so forth. That makes so much sense. And honestly, you're creating a space. You're, you're creating a change that's going to show effect for generations to come as well. Yeah, yeah. I, it's It's so important that, you know, we hold ourselves accountable for our own behavior I'll talk openly with my parents now. And, and as someone who I know follows me, like you've probably listened to me, maybe mention my parents, or if anyone listens to my podcast episodes, I talk a lot about my childhood at times. Now I have a relationship with my parents where I can sit down and express like, Hey, I didn't know if daddy loved me or not growing up because he wasn't affectionate towards me. And my mom was overly affectionate. And my dad, like I'll watch and witness how he navigates that conversation. Now I didn't feel safe expressing that as a child, but now I'm equipped. And he's like, well, I didn't have that as a kid. And it, it opens up this dialogue now because I'm holding myself accountable for for what happened to me and what I now pass on to other people, right? So I'm strong enough to then sit in front of people that might've hurt me without knowing they hurt me and say, hey, this is how this felt. Help me understand, like, did you did you not love me? Did you not want to be affectionate? Or like, what was it? And, and it was a recent conversation. My dad was like, listen, like, this is how my mother and father were. And when you're in your seventies and you're just having a conversation like that, that really tears at my heart. Cause it's kind of like, you've been functioning for decades without ever, like, I mean, you said for like six years, you didn't be, you didn't communicate about something that really hurt you. Imagine functioning for decades in your life in a way where you were really suppressing your truth. That's so harmful to like the people that you're interacting with, but also yourself. What's interesting. What I, what I found is uh, no matter where we are in the world, it's almost like a standard response with a lot of parents because conversations that I've had with my parents as well a lot of times my mom has also said that that's just how we were brought up that's just yeah. how we are and and uh, we can't change that now but I think the that that's that's something that really that. me from time to time about <laughs> well like, that's the thing that's the thing is that like that's the truth right that's how you were raised that's all you know but as I always say to my mom I'm like that's no excuse I, go, I, I say the exact same thing for me it's always <laughs> about like uh whatever you're brought up with and like what it is but right now you're an adult you're, you can't tell me that you're a 60 year old individual and blame something that happened 50 years ago and yeah. I just think that you have to hold yourself accountable like right now I'm not asking you to make extreme changes or anything like that but acknowledge that it happened and make an effort at least to understand more and to read yeah. more. I, I know for a fact this isn't just conversation I've had with just my parents and I know a lot of individuals that have had this kind of space and I think the concept of um, like with age your responsibility something you can throw away I think is a sort of perpetuated principle at least I've, that I've noticed yeah yeah I, honestly you know why I think they do it? it it's because they're not they're not equipped but they're also not really open or willing to change they've they've surrounded themselves with individuals who have shown them they'll tolerate it and when i started to demonstrate with my parents like 
I'm not going to tolerate the lack of boundaries anymore. It's harmful to me. I'm not going to come around. Whereas like, you know, my brother and sister might not have done the work I've done. So their way of dealing with the lack of boundaries is they just don't communicate or they just don't come around. Like they avoid it. I sat down and was like, listen, I want to spend time with you. I value these relationships, but this is not going to fly. So when you raise your voice or you call me names, I'm going to communicate once to you that like, I'm not here to be abused that way. And if you're not going to stop, we'll just hang out another day. I'm just going to leave the building. And when I started to implement these boundaries repetitively, they, they got it very quickly. Like, okay, noted Amy's leaving. If we raise our voice, Amy's leaving, if we yell at her or call her names, or we disrespect her in any way. And I, it sounds disrespectful, but it's the best example. It's like training a dog. You can't just expect the dog to sit the first time you say sit. You have to want them to sit so much and have value in that, right? Like telling them to sit might keep them out of running into a moving traffic. So you have to put in that effort to repetitively say, okay, this is the behavior I want you to exhibit when you're in front of me. And you got to upkeep it on your end because it's a value to you and they'll adjust accordingly. They will. And if they don't, then you just find different ways to kind of, as I always say, remove that margin of error, right? Like if, if they're going to keep doing it, I'm going to get a little bit more firmer and kind of close those walls in where you're going to see there's reduced contact with Amy until you start to really respect what I'm asking of you. You you brought up uh, boundaries. Could we delve a little more into like what yeah. the boundaries are, like what boundaries are in itself? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I love love boundaries because because truly, I feel like boundaries and communication are the two most important foundational things in any type of relationship. When those are like cracked, then like how can that relationship be healthy and sustain itself? It can't. You're gonna have a disconnect. You're gonna have intimacy issues. You're gonna have trust issues. Like all of that is fueled by a lack of boundaries and communication. So to your question, boundaries are literally, it's like, I did this in a podcast once, it's the fence around your house, right? So like if your body is your house and like your boundaries are your fence, they're gonna be individual to you. How you determine what those boundaries are, are what don't you like around you? What don't you want coming at you? If I don't like somebody raising their voice when they're angry at me, that's a boundary for me. It's not right or wrong. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people are okay communicating that way. For me, I have a trauma response to that and I go into fight or flight mode. So you've gotta be able to work through conflict at this tone of voice. Right. So those boundaries keep you safe. They make you feel protected. They make you feel loved. They make you feel supported. And that's going to be a very individual process, person to person. But, you know, in that podcast episode, I said, you know, you can't get mad if you leave the fence open and people just walk right in and they let their dog go to the bathroom in your yard and then you get pissed off at them. Shut the fence. It's our job to not only let others know this is a boundary for me, but it's also your responsibility to uphold that boundary. Like you've got to respect it on your end. If I, if I say, this is what I want and you do the opposite of it and I allow it, the message I send you is that it's okay for you to do it. So and, and you, how would you suggest about like what it is to set healthy boundaries? Like how would you suggest is how do you set healthy boundaries? Like, what do you understand? Like, how do we sort of um, understand what would be healthy boundaries for us? Like, I think that uh, almost at times you find like um, there's an obligation to maintain certain relationships, like whether it's within your family or not. Like, I've, I've felt it a lot of times that um, I'm, I have an obligation that I have to maintain a certain relationship with certain family members, regardless of how they affect me or my mental health. And so I've always struggled with the idea of like setting boundaries and especially healthier boundaries. And I think mm. especially, uh, I know we're going to get into people pleasing later on as well, because I know it has a huge connection over here. Like for a person who, for a recovering people pleaser, how do we set, like sort of set healthy boundaries? Well, so, so a couple of things. First of all, your boundaries are what you value. So think of boundaries like your values, right? If I value 
healthy communication. And the definition of that for me is like, we're able to resolve conflicts in a productive way. We're not going to shame or criticize or abuse or attack or manipulate each other. We speak lovingly and supportively with each other. Like if that's my definition of healthy communication, and that's what I value, then my way of setting boundaries or figuring out what those boundaries are, are when I have a conversation, let's say with you, if you speak to me in a way that rubs at me and makes me feel unsafe or attacked or, you know, uh, criticized or judged, first, it's my responsibility to work through that emotion, not take it out on you, not project and attack you. I first have to address like, okay, like, why do I feel this way? And was it a word she used or a tone of voice that triggered me? What was it? And once I kind of regulate myself that way, then I can effectively approach you and say, I can hear you better when you speak to me like this. When I'm spoken to this way, it makes me feel whatever, fill in the blank, right? And, you, and, and my way of going about boundaries is always speak from the I perspective, share how it makes you feel. And this is context-based. There's not a necessity for you to always reveal all of your emotions. Like, hi, I have a trauma response to this and here's what I processed in therapy, but more so like, you know, I can hear you better and I can respect you more if you communicate in this tone or this way with me. And then basically you give them free will. And if, if they're not able or willing to kind of like rise to that occasion and respect what you're communicating you need in that moment, then that's okay. You just have to adjust accordingly in their presence. Now to what you just expressed regarding like obligation to certain people in your life, obligation is, is an unhealthy concept in and of itself. Right. And, and that can come from generational types of teachings. I know there was a lot of obligation in my family because there was this belief that was passed down throughout the decades of like family sticks together. And yet, you know, like where, where blood is thicker than water and family comes first and all of these things. So, so what came with that was an obligation to tolerate the mistreatment or the abuse from family because family sticks together. So it was like the seed that was planted in terms of that belief that drove our behavior patterns. So you have to step aside and decide for yourself what do I value? What are my beliefs about family? Because like, yeah, you're part of a family, but you're also an individual at the end of the day. So just because mom, dad, brother, sister, and cousin Sue tolerate this type of behavior, does that align with me personally? And if the answer is no, then it doesn't mean you always have to, and this, this is important. A lot of people out there just say, cut people off. Like, I don't like how they treat me. Just cut them off. Just don't answer them. Don't that's super unhealthy. What you want to do is effectively communicate to that person or decide if communication is necessary given the context and the relationship. It might be a long distant aunt, uncle, or cousin that you never really have to see except once a year. So do you need to go announce to them that like, I don't really want to be in your presence? No, you just have to decide accordingly when the opportunity presents itself is this going to be a safe environment to enter into? And if I do, what am I going to proactively do on my behalf so that I make sure I feel respected, safe, and supported in front of this person? That makes so much sense. And what about with the kind of guilt that sort of uh, comes with boundaries? Because I think a lot of times you'll find that because I'm taking that step of like, okay, I'm going to set boundaries, but uh, especially for someone who's a recovering people, please. I know I keep coming back to that. I think it's just a perfect example to sort of, it is. Um, uh, explain it but like for a people pleaser uh, setting boundaries I'm sure there's a lot of guilt that comes with it like I'm, I'm trying to put myself first and I'm trying to put that space between um, us and like trying to make sure that I take care of myself as well but there's like a constant guilt that sort of carries over so how would someone deal with that kind of guilt? Well, so a couple of things about guilt. I love guilt because it's so it's so misconstrued by so many. Guilt is us thinking for other people. So, which is impossible. So I feel guilty setting this boundary because I think that you are going to be hurt by me saying this, or I think you're going to react this way. So I'm trying to think on your behalf 
probably based on past experiences with you or assumptions I'm making. Either or are none of your business. You're your business. So, so you feeling guilty, I mean, it's a natural emotion that we feel, but it's also us trying to do the impossible. So, so that's understanding that is number one, but number two, like if we use the people pleasing example, right? Like people pleasers, they people pleasers. And I say this respectfully because I was one of them. We operate from a very selfish place. We're trying to get our needs met. We're fearing abandonment. We're fearing rejection. We're fearing a lot of things coming probably from our childhood. So we start to please and appease people out of fear that if I don't do these things, I'm not going to get my needs met or you're going to leave me. So we start to function that way. So when I work with people who struggle with people pleasing patterns and we start to implement boundaries, guilt obviously comes up a lot, but also like a fear of abandonment comes up again because they're like, I'm, and you said it, I'm putting this space between me and you. Boundaries are not there to create space so much as they're there to create a safe environment for connection and intimacy. So if I have a relationship with you where I can be open and honest about what I need and want, we feel much closer and we feel much more respected versus me tolerating behaviors and operating with you out of obligation or fear that you're going to abandon me or reject me if I don't do X, Y, and Z. So to mitigate that feeling of guilt, what you have to conclude for yourself is like, hey, I'm not pushing people away by setting these boundaries. I'm actually welcoming, welcoming, welcoming. Oh my God, I can't talk today. I'm inviting them in, welcoming. I got it, welcoming <laughs> them in, right? Um, I'm inviting them closer to me. I'm helping them really see me and understand me and respect me. And I think like the, the one thing at the core of all of these struggles is that we don't fully understand what respect is and how to cultivate it. Because a lot of us grew up and you might resonate with this, that respect was obedience. Mm -hmm. If my mom says, jump, you ask how high. And if you question that you're disrespecting her, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, Versus absolutely. respect is actually like, Hey, here's what I need. And here's how I feel. You don't really have to agree with it, but you have to at least understand and consider the fact that this is what this does to me before you do X, Y, and Z, right? So it's considering other people's feelings and beliefs and whatnot. That's what respect is. To cultivate it, we need the communication and the boundary aspect. So people pleasers need to kind of get over a lot of layers of those, whatever those individual fears are. And then kind of navigate through feeling like I get this a lot. People saying like, I feel like I'm being a bitch or I feel like I'm being mean or I'm scared they're going to like lash out and hurt me or attack me or accuse me of things. They have to navigate through all of those specific fears to be able to then effectively say like, hey, like I'm not actually doing any harm to you by asking for what I need and want. I've just been led to believe that my whole life. So what do you say people pleasing is almost a trauma response? Uh, could you, would you say that's a term that would be accurate to describe it? It can be a trauma response, but more so it's conditioned from a young age. Like case in point, I'll use myself as an example. I didn't, and, and this was not intentional. And I've talked about it with my parents openly. My mother and father worked full time. And there was three of us and I'm the middle child. So, so there's an odd number to begin with. And I already kind of feel forgotten and left out because I'm smashed between two people that are the oldest and the youngest. Then you tack on me wanting my mom's attention when she got home from work. She worked a high stress job in the operating room at the hospital. So she came home and she was already like checked out, but trying to cook dinner and help her kids and do all of these things. And I am operating from a place of like, I need you and I need your undivided time and attention. And she'd come over and start to help me. And then the phone would ring and she'd innocently go answer the phone and she'd excuse herself into another room. And then she'd never come back to finish helping me. And in my little innocent brain at the time, I was like, mommy doesn't love me. Mommy loves whoever's on the phone more than me. I'm forgotten. I'm not good enough to hold her attention. And it started to condition me to realize, well, you know what? 
I'm going to figure out how to get this need met. And so this is kind of where like the people pleasing starts to come in like, okay, all right. So like, if I start to like please her and appease her, if I start to behave in certain ways that will garner this attention and get this need met, it'll work. It works the same way. Like we hear people pleasing and codependency smashed together a lot because they're interchangeable concepts. Mm -hmm. People pleasers are codependent. Codependent aren't always people pleasers. And basically they work hand in hand. So when you've got a people pleaser, they're usually operating with a codependent person. That codependent person is usually making the people pleaser responsible for their emotional state or their actions. And the people pleaser willingly takes on that job because they need their needs met and they figure, well, if I take responsibility for this. So in my example, mom was stressed, mom was busy. And, so, and, and when she would take it out on me, when she would get mad that I wanted her attention, I took it because I thought, well, if I take this on, I'll get her attention. And it just entangles us in this process. And before you know it, if that's your prime example, you start to do that in other relationships in your life. And then, and basically like the bottom line here with both behaviors is there's a lack of boundaries. It all comes back to conversation and boundaries. It really does. Yeah. 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 Uh, but okay, so um, since we're talking about uh, how everything makes us feel, I, I yeah. wanted to discuss a little bit about why it's so important for us to pay attention to our emotional health as well. I think uh, as years passed, we first had obviously physical health has always been given a certain a level of importance. Now, slowly, I feel the conversation around mental health is changing and people are recognizing that it exists. And I think now uh, there's also the concept of emotional health, which you don't really talk about as enough. But like, how would you say how important is emotional health as well? And how it connects to the other two is? Well, they're, I mean, they're all connected. It's like, it's three in one working together. So, so, and I would say mental and emotional health really impact our physical health. When you don't address the emotions that, that you have going on in your body and you don't address the, the negative thought patterns that you have, and you, you don't give them the attention that they deserve, what takes place is you get a physical symptom. Mm -hmm. So you feel out of control, you feel anxious, and suddenly you have an anxiety disorder. Now, is the anxiety disorder inherited? Were you born with it pertaining to my belief system? No you have behaviors and thought processes that make you feel out of control. So in other words, you were never given tools or coping mechanisms to deal with situation. I mean, we're, we're, we're never in control of other people or what's going on in the world. So when people are like, I have generalized anxiety disorder, I have this specific diagnosis. I was diagnosed with severe anxiety in my teens. So I get it. You walk around and you just feel out of control all the time. I didn't know how to make myself feel in control. I didn't know how to control my thoughts. I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. And therefore I experienced anxiety and they gave me a pill to deal with the anxiety, right? So that's the kind of that three in one, like how it really functions. I always like do it because I'm a Reiki master too. And I work with energy. So when I, when I listen to somebody coming to me saying, I have this reoccurring pain in my body, I'm like, there's something that you're not addressing emotionally. Like, yes, you can get physically injured, but our body works as a way of shouting at you <laughs> to look at these emotions. If you liken your emotions to being like a small child and they just need a space to be seen, heard, and validated, and you don't do that for them, they're going to find a way to get that attention like I did as a kid come up with really interesting ways to do that. And then we as humans come up with really interesting terms to place on them and medications to treat them with. That's interesting. Over the past couple of months, I've also personally seen and rather understood our body in itself has a lot of safety mechanisms that really mm -hmm. just sort of come into place when we're experiencing things and yeah. they manifest in different ways in our body that we don't even realize. And it's just like you said, it's our body shouting at us saying that this is happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to me how the body, I mean, the body is so smart, right? But 
like as somebody who wasn't shown how to deal with her emotions, but chose like, Hey, can I go to therapy? Can I get help? There's something wrong here and has experienced it many different ways. I can come back and, and circle back to the conclusion of like, Hey, my physical health is maintained, not just by exercise and, and eating right and hydrating and all of that jazz, but when I tend to my emotional state and, and that's not just let's be positive. Let's surround ourselves with positive people. That's, Hey, when I'm sad, I'm allowed to cry. And, and that's okay too. That doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. I'm going to feel anxious when I feel out of control. That doesn't mean I have a disorder. That means I'm not clear in my mind and I'm not controlling how my emotions are pertaining to what I'm thinking about. Right. You know what you brought up the uh, be happy like uh, a positive this one that's that toxic positivity is, is is so harmful and I think we've all been conditioned to think that uh, the only feelings that you should be feeling are positive feelings you should feel happy you should feel good you should feel proud you should, uh, and the, I think this is something that I've been guilty of as well I think the moment you feel sad your first reflex is to do something that makes you feel happy you've never yeah. been told that it's okay to sit in those um, uncomfortable and like less positive feelings and I think more than anything if we we need to recognize a feeling all feelings is very important yeah yeah we do and and honestly that starts from a young age as well like if our parents allow us a space to be upset and and just lean us into a more productive way to express it like if a parent sits down I I did this I nannied before I did this for a living. Right. And I nannied seven boys and, and they weren't raised. I mean, they were being raised in a similar way to the way I was raised. So I walked into that environment going, you know what, I'm going to give them what was not given to me. And even though I'm not their mother, I'm going to leave an imprint here that hopefully sticks in a healthy way. And so you know, I would sit down when one of them was angry and yelling at me and saying, I don't want to do my homework. It's stupid. I'd sit down and I'd go, what's really going on? Talk to me. And they, that was foreign to them. They were like, "What? (laughs) you're not going to slap me. You're not going to scream at me, but their acting out was their way of getting that attention and affection. They didn't know they could get it in a healthy way. Right. So, so they would lash out and expect, and I did this as a child too. expect somebody to yell back and being yelled at made me feel loved because that was the attention I would get. So, you know, like if we have a space to express these in a productive way, then we grow up not fearing them anymore. But, you know, like I said, like I can connect it to a lot of like addictions and things like that. Like we we cope with these outside substances or, or these labels and things outside of ourselves because nobody ever cultivated a safe environment or a supportive dialogue for us to say like, hey, it's okay that you're anxious right now. Like, what do you need? What do you need to express to me? Let's be productive in this conversation. The same goes with like conflict. Like a lot of us didn't learn conflict resolution growing up. We learned, hey, like I do something wrong, I get punished. And I'm going to go sulk about it. And I'm going to beg for forgiveness. And that's how I'm going to cope. Like nobody sat down. I mean, not nobody. There's people out there who did, but not in my reality. I didn't get somebody sitting with me saying, hey, like, let's, let's find a solution and let's work together because I'm not your enemy. Instead, it was, we're going to create separation and we're going to fuel this belief system of it's us against you. And we're going to make you as a child feel very small and very alone. So we can kind of garner our control because we don't know how to do that in a healthy way. That makes so much sense. And yeah, it really (laughs) is fascinating when you think about all of this. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about how, uh, when it came to my life um, over the past couple of months, especially uh, since I started this project, I met a lot of individuals and for the first time um, they were taking into account like how I was reacting to a situation and how I I was, um, whether I was triggered or not. And it was the first time someone actually asked me, are you okay with this space? Are you okay with having this particular conference? And it was just like what you said, like, well, it was so foreign to me. I was like, you're asking me this question? Like, it's okay to have this question? Like, it's all right to express my point of view in this uh, particular situation, which I think, and 
I'm, I'm in my early 20s now. Like, it's not something I've ever experienced when I was growing up in yeah. my environment as well. So I could relate to almost everything you were saying. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so interesting when we bump into those moments in our life where we're like, oh my God, and I still have them. Like, we're all human. I still have those moments where I'm like, wait, like, you're not going to yell at me if I get upset right now because all I've ever experienced is somebody escalating back when I escalate, right? Or you're not going to do this when I do this because that's the conditioned behavior I've grown accustomed to. And when you have that new imprint, now, you know, when you, when you think about the next moment, something like that comes up, you get to decide, like, am I going to default to this old way of thinking and fearing, or I'm going to expect the new, do I want more of the new Then, if I want more of the new and the healthy, I just established some boundaries where I only, I only interact with people who are going to offer me that newness that I want. I think just hearing that all these, con- like hearing these conversations in itself, like our chat now, people are also going to have like a few click moments, like, oh, it's all right totally. to do this. It's all right to hold this space. Um, so could you tell us a little bit of like, maybe a few recommended some practices that we can sort of introduce in our daily routine that we can take care of our emotional health? Yeah, of course. So, I mean, first of all, I'm a strong proponent of like exercise and movement. And I know that's like cliche, but the reality is, is that that strongly impacts your mental and emotional health. But also if you have trauma, right? If you have trauma in your body and you don't have a daily routine, then what happens is you can spiral very quickly into a a fight or flight mode because there's no consistency in your day and you're reliant and it depends on your trauma, but you're reliant on things in your day to go like this. And that's not always going to happen. So you have to kind of cultivate that routine yourself so that you walk into your day being like, okay, I'm safe. Right. So it tells the body, this is a predictable behavior I can expect every day. And you grow accustomed to it. And then you develop a routine from there. So always movement and exercise daily is important. It doesn't matter how long it could be 10 minutes. It could be 30. It could be more than that. Um, Also meditation. Again, I know a cliche item, but the truth is, is that the benefit of meditation is you're slowing yourself down so that you can witness a lot of these triggers when you think about them and you condition yourself away from reacting and trying to fix them. And your emotional health means like part of, part of being emotionally healthy means that I feel my emotions, I'm aware of my triggers and I'm mindful of my behavior pertaining to the two. So if I can sit down and start to condition myself to witness a trigger when I'm thinking about it, I I always use the example of like, think of credits scrolling at the end of a movie. That's what meditation feels like. Cause everybody's always like, I can't sit down and I can't sit still for very long because I got too many thoughts. I go, trust me. So do I, you're witnessing them. You're not stopping them. That's a misconception. So you want to watch the credits scroll. You don't want to attach. You're not pausing the movie to read any of them. If something triggers an emotion, your goal is to train your body to breathe through it. And then, you know, you can leave meditation. And the next thing I always recommend, that's a great tool is journaling, because once you kind of sit there and silence yourself, it brings up a lot of those unprocessed emotions in your body. And then being able to provide yourself that safe space that we've continued to talk about that a lot of people didn't have and still don't have in their lives. To have a journaling practice where you just sit down and you write out what you're thinking or you write out some of these triggers and you talk to yourself the way you wanna be spoken to or you just like, you know, get it out of you. The goal is to get the emotions out of your body. So you know, I always kind of liken it to, you want to shake things up through the movement and then you want to shut things up through the meditation. And then you want to shift, right? You want to shift the thinking. You want to reframe the thoughts by journaling it out, get it out of your body and kind of change your mind about it and change your behaviors about it. I love that. Uh, I, I had a recent conversation a couple of weeks ago on meditation as well. And I found it very interesting. So we were talking about how um, and I love the analogy of the credits after a movie scene. It was very easy to like sort of uh, understand what you were explaining. Just let it pass and you don't have to attach to anything. 
And yeah. in that conversation, we talked about meditation as you're letting your thoughts catch up to your body and just taking okay. a pause. Uh, like like you said, we're just slowing down, taking a pause. We're not trying to avoid any thoughts. We're just letting your mind and your body catch up with one another, which yeah, I found was a very interesting um, concept of uh, or other perception of meditation as well. Yeah, I think I, I think meditation is fascinating because like it's it, it, regardless of how we all explain it, it's always doing the same thing. It's really getting you in alignment with you. Right. So in the in the action of slowing yourself down, teaching yourself to be mindful of what you're thinking and breathing your way through, you're developing a really healthy coping tool in that moment. Right. Because the goal is when you go out into the world and that very trigger arises, you don't want to be reacting and attacking in that moment. You want to be able to regulate yourself and self-soothe. And that's what that space that you provide yourself in the meditation practice is for. Is like, here, I'm going to practice. That's why it's called practice. I'm going to practice this before I enter into the world and everything descends on me. Now I'm equipped. Now I'm prepared. And like, and if by chance something arises that I'm not prepared for, a thought that I didn't think about before, I've got the coping tool of breathing, regulating, and soothing in me. So I know what to do with myself in that heated moment. Which is a wonderful coping tool to have in your toolbox as well. Because I think a lot of times, I know personally, this has happened to me for a very long time. I had only one coping uh, mechanism that I was focusing on, which was my physical exercise. And I, I used to I used to be in combat sports. I was training for as a mixed martial arts fighter. And I sustained an injury that had me bedridden for a couple of months. So I was benched completely from my routine. And mm. that's when I went through a very dark spiral myself because the one coping tool that I had was what I had only sort of latched onto. And when I lost that only tool that I had, I struggled extremely hard. So I think yeah. meditation is one tool that, I mean, you cannot, you can always do it. Like I, if I had meditation as a coping mechanism, then uh, even when I was bedridden, it would have, it would have, it's still something that I could have done. So I think it's really yeah. important. Like even when you have your coping mechanisms, you shouldn't be latched onto just one practice. But if, if it is a one practice that you're getting latched onto something as simple as meditation and breath work is something that you could afford to be latched onto because it's not something that you'd actually lose regardless yeah, of your physical free. situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. It's free. And, and that's the thing too, is like journaling is free. You can grab a piece of paper from anywhere and just jot down what you're thinking or everybody has a phone these days for the most part. So like grab your phone, a, a good tool that I give clients of mine is like text message yourself. And they're like, what? That's crazy. And I go, no, no, it's very helpful. Let me explain why. Because when you text yourself, you send it and then you receive it. And that's a different emotion that happens when you send it out because you're typing and you feel like you're typing it to someone else. And then all of a sudden that shit pops up on your phone again. And you're literally like, oh, that's what I was thinking and feeling. And you hear it differently. It's kind of like the, the value of sitting down in a therapy session or with someone like me is you're talking it out loud in a safe environment where nobody's gonna attack or judge you. And you hear yourself when you say it out loud. That's and when very you interesting, hear it, texting yourself. Yeah, oh, I know. <laughs> I know. And everybody's like, where did you? I said, I did it one day and it stuck. And I now offer it to everybody. It's really valuable. I encourage anyone yourself. to try I think it. I'm going to give this a go as well. Yeah, it's, it's cool. And it, and it's really cool when you're like, when you're, I mean, in any moment, when it's a positive moment, you send it and you receive it and you read this like compliment coming back at you. But when you're confused or you're angry or you're triggered by something and you type it out, it's like, that's that safe space that you're looking for. And if we always just kind of like come back to the reality that your emotions need a space to be seen, heard, felt, and validated, that's what you're doing using that tool, right? Like that's what you're doing using the tool is you're sitting down, giving those emotions a safe space to be seen, heard, felt, and validated. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep thinking about this. Um, also, uh, I don't want to keep you for too long. So I just have a few more questions. So I, I want to talk a little bit about trauma. So could you just tell us what exactly it means to be trauma-informed? 
Of course. I love this question because a, a lot of people you overuse the word trauma these days mm -hmm. and being trauma informed is not something that anyone can just kind of plaster on their profession or their work because you have to be qualified. You have to be educated to be trauma informed. I went through a certification process for my trauma support specialist certification. You have to understand the way the nervous system works and the way your body acts when it's in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And then basically from that point, you are equipped, like you learn how to navigate when somebody is in, has incurred trauma, you learn how to navigate them through that trauma because trauma has like 10 more layers than just like a normal fear because it's impacting your nervous system. So someone who's trauma-informed is going to be well-equipped if you tend to default to fight, flight, or freeze mode because and, and honestly, and I can't categorize this because trauma is very individual. Something that traumatizes you might not be traumatizing to me. Like a car accident might traumatize one person in the accident, but not the other, right? Mm -hmm. Divorce might traumatize one child in the family, but not the other three children. So it's very specific to how somebody is perceiving the situation and their own experience. If it's if it's something that has left them feeling completely powerless and, and tortured and horrified and fearful of for their life or you know for their safety, it's often traumatizing for them. So an, a trauma-informed individual is gonna know how to work through that, that pain and those fears with that extra couple layers of the nervous system doing what it's what it's supposed to do, which is jumping into fight, flight, or freeze mode when it feels like you need to be protected. Yeah, absolutely. And how would you say uh, trauma manifests in our body? So, well, so that has everything to do with our nervous system. Like when, when you have a negative experience, like think about it like this, right? Every time you walk into that house that your friend lives in, if you got punched in the face every time you walk through the door, your body is going to at some point be conditioned to flinch and protect yourself when you walk through that door. That's, that's how it's stored in the body. It remembers the situation because it's from a conditioned like response that you're having to a very fearful situation. If you walk into a forest and you bump into a bear, and that bear now lunges at you, then the next time you walk into a forest, you might just inadvertently go into fight or flight mode because you're suspecting that something's going to lunge at you and you're going to have to protect yourself. So the so body really remembers. The body remembers and the body is, and, and this is a misconception about trauma, which is that it's bad that you're behaving that way. Like, your body remembers something that was scary to you and it jumped in to do its job and protect you. That's the what you want your body to do. Have. Yeah, you want your body to do that for you. So your body, so what I tell any trauma patient, I wouldn't call them patients, clients of mine, is that your body is doing what it's trained to do. You want your body to act that way. What you have to learn is how to soothe your nervous system and how to now teach it that I'm now in a safe environment. And so, so the, the, the problem that we experience with a lot of people who have incurred a lot of trauma over the years is that they've got triggers that they're unaware of, right? If you've got trauma like I do from way back in childhood, and then you've got repeated trauma throughout the years, then you're walking around as an adult and you, it's like a minefield. You don't know, is it going to be a sound, a tone of voice, something that's going to kind of set you off and make you go into fight or flight mode. So knowing that you have trauma, like educating yourself on the difference between an anxiety attack versus fight, flight, or freeze mode is really important. And, and they can often be Con, like confused with each other because, uh, you know, your chest can start to palpitate and all of that. And you might think you're having a panic attack or something when really your body is just shutting down on you because it's doing what it's meant to do. Learning yourself and what is, is triggering that reaction is going to be able to determine is this trauma or is this not? And then what do I need to proactively do for myself now that I am informed that I have trauma? 
And only a trauma-informed individual is going to be capable and equipped of helping you through that. Incredibly interesting. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it really is like trauma is a response from our body that, and just sort of reminds us where we are. So the body yeah. really does remember all of it. It remembers and it's, it's good. Like, that's the thing. It's good, but it's also, it, it can become detrimental to you if you're unaware that it is trauma. But when you're, when, when you know it's trauma, then you know, okay, I, like I said earlier, I have, I go into fight, flight, or freeze mode, um, normally freeze when someone raises their voice and yells at me. Like, so I was living in an apartment and the neighbors above me, I don't know if you followed me this long, but I had neighbors above me and there was a domestic violence thing going on. And I, I didn't know what to do with myself because I would hear screaming, yelling, and stomping at all hours of the day. And I would just shut down. I just collapse to the floor and start shaking because it takes my body back to a time where I was a powerless child and there was screaming and yelling and I didn't know how to function in that environment. So I just froze. And so to cope with it, you've got to make those connections. And so you do that with someone who's not trauma informed, they might push you a little too far and they might not be equipped to understand like, this is what your body's supposed to do. So here's where we kind of stop this process and give you a coping tool. Incredibly interesting how our body and our brain, it all works. And yeah, I love it. it. And again, <laughs> this is information that we all need to understand. It's, it's so important. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Thank you so much, Amy, for like bringing all of that up. I just have one last question um, before we wind up. And that's um, how, what would you say is, um, how important is empathy and compassion in our lives? Oh my God, so, so important. Like for, I mean, number one, like as children, that's the number one thing we're wanting from our parents is love. And what comes with love is empathy, compassion, kindness, and all of these things, right? And so without it, we start to feel neglected, abandoned, dismissed, rejected, all of these things that are not healthy for our upbringing or, or you know, for us going out into the world and cultivating healthy um, relationships in our life. So to be able, and, and that's the thing though, you have to be aware of your own stuff to be able to be compassionate and empathetic towards other people. And I think, you know, sometimes people really want to be empathetic towards another, but they don't know how to get themselves to that place because they're too triggered by their own pain. And so the only way to really cultivate that empathy and that compassion is to address our own stuff in that process, to be able to extend what we've reached on the other side of our pain, which is, you know, like, like I've done with my parents. A lot of people admire the fact that I can talk about an upbringing and then sit in front of them now and film them and be like, Hey, we're cool. Like we hang out and we have open conversations and we're loving towards each other because I, I worked through what hurt me and was able to look at them and go, wow, you know, like I feel for you. The reason you treated me this way is because you were, you were treated that way. And you probably felt as scared as I did. And so now that I've equipped myself, I can look back at you through these compassionate eyes and feel for you. And I think, you know, it takes a really strong person to be able to express empathy and compassion because what it shows me personally is you've, you've done some work on yourself. That's incredible. That's thank you so much for sharing that. Um, oh, you're so for those welcome. Of, uh, anyone who's followed the podcast till now knows that I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to like compassion and empathy and kindness it's just principles that I think the world would be a better place if we all could live by yeah yeah no it would but you know what it would require a lot of people to face themselves and face that pain that they just learn to cope with and deal with in in unhealthy ways and like not everybody is ready or willing or open to even do that so like we want more of it. And that's why we do things like this. You create passion projects to get these messages out because one person hearing that it's okay to cry or one person hearing that like, Hey, it's safe to express myself and set a boundary and, and do these things. The more that ripples out, the more of a chance we have of more people in this world being compassionate and empathetic towards each other. That's I'm hoping at least, um, if even one person, uh, is helped by this project, I'm, I'm content. 
that they will be. I I believe it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, Amy, that's what I wanted to talk about. Honestly, I have learned so much from this chat in itself. I'm really looking forward to hearing what the listeners have learned and understood. Thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any final thoughts or, or advice or any words you want to leave for the listeners before we wrap up? No, make sure you subscribe to her podcast. This is amazing conversations and you're such a kind and strong and honest individual. And it's been a delight to talk to you. So I thank you for inviting me on. And, you know, if they're more interested in anything else I have to say, they're welcome to follow me on Instagram at Amy, the life coach. Um, But it's, it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much again for taking the time. Of course, you're welcome.